My name is Scott Holly. I'm one of the elders here at the church. Um, they give the staff, most of the staff, the week off at Christmas, so they always have the, the B team come up and do the sermon on these days. So uh, that's, that's what we're up to today. I want to be maybe not the first, but I want to be one of, the, one of the first to wish you a happy new year. And then I want to say to you that having done that, I don't understand New Year's at all. This is the one holiday of the year that absolutely, that really honestly makes no sense. We come through the holiday season, Thanksgiving is very clear. We know what that's about. And Christmas, it's very clear what that's about. And then you get to New Year's and like, and honestly, what is that about? Because people get together and, the, and it turns midnight and those who are still awake, and that's never me, but those who are still awake yell and scream and act like it's a big deal. And really, we have no idea what 2020 will bring. We don't know if it's going to be a year of celebration or a year of trepidation. We don't know if it's going to be a great year or a terrible year. And even for the people who have a great year in 2020, there will be moments that will be really, really difficult. I don't care how well the year goes for us, there are going to be moments where we're going to say, God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand this. God, this makes no sense. God, where are you? For some people, that will be the tone of the entire year. For other people, that will be moment. There will be moments like that. But for all of us, a new year really is a time to look ahead, yes, but whether we should do so with optimism or the sense of, of quiet dread is really something that is, is real. And so when the ball drops in Times Square and people yell and scream and jump up and down, I always kind of look at them and say, well, I hope you're right. But I don't know if they will be. And that's really what we want to talk about today. We want to talk about what do we do in moments in our life where God doesn't really make sense, where things aren't going the way we'd like them to go, where we ask the question, God, where are you? Because I think, again, all of us in 2020 2020, will probably ask that question at some time. Now, having said that, let me quickly jump to the sermon and the sentence because the good news is that God does make sense. And the sermon, the sentence says simply this, that we may not always see it or feel it. God is at work, God is good, and God can be trusted. So let me open in prayer, and then we're going to go down that road and just see where this takes us. Father, I do thank you that though events in our life can be confusing, can be sometimes depressing, can cause us sometimes to despair, that you were there. We may not see it, we may not feel it, we may not know it, but you are there. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help us to have eyes to see, that we would, that we would trust you, that in those moments where life just seems to hit us in the face, that we would breathe deeply and say, Lord, I don't get it, and I don't like it, and I don't understand it, but I thank you that you're real, and I thank you're there. And I pray, Lord, that will be the reality of our lives. We ask these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, to try to understand this, I think the best way to begin to understand it is to look at an example from Scripture where there's real blindness going on, where people just don't see what the reality is. So uh, we're going to look at 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 11, but I want to give you some context before we start so you have a sense of where this is, what, what this is all about. Here's the story. The Syrian king has it out for Israel. He wants to crush the Israelites. And so time after time after time, he gathers his army, marches out against Israel, but he finds that every time he does, the Israelite defenses are up, they're ready for him, and he can't ever defeat them in battle. And he grows increasingly frustrated. This doesn't make any sense to him. His army is more powerful than that of Israel, and yet he can't seem to make any, any headway against them. 
And he begins to think there must be a spy in my court who continues to tip off the Israelites and tell them what's going on. So he calls all his advisors together, his servants together, and he basically, well, this is what happens. This is, again, 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, this thing being that he can't defeat Israel. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, who's the spy? And one of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is, and I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So apparently God is supernaturally revealing to Elisha what the the plans are for the king of Syria. He goes to the king of Israel, tells him what's going on, and, and the king of Syria finding out this Elisha says, well, this is easy. I'll just capture him and kill him and we'll be done with it. And that's what he sets out to do. We pick up the story then in verse 15. When the servant of the man of God, that is the servant Elisha, rose early in the morning, went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? Now that's the right reaction, right? If there's an army surrounding this church, we'd all look out the window and go, what are we going to do? I mean, they're really in trouble. This army has a drop on them. They have no real solution here. They're going to be killed, and he doesn't know what to do. And, and Elisha says this, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. So there is a supernatural army surrounding the city. All is well, but nobody can see it except for Elisha. Elisha prays, Open the eyes of my servant that he can see. And when he does, it's like, Oh my goodness, God is there. God is at work. God has a protection here in place that I didn't see. And the reality is that we are like Elisha's servant. That's exactly the condition we find ourselves in when things don't go well for us. When the difficult circumstances of life hit, the default for all of us, myself included, is to go, God, what are you doing? Where are you? How can you do this to me? And we are filled with fear. We're filled with despair. We're filled with sadness because it feels like God is not at work. And he understands that. Because he's seen it again and again and again and again. He sees it in the pages of Scripture all the time. Some examples. How do you think that Isaac felt when he realized that his father Abraham was intending to sacrifice him as an offering to God on Mount Horeb? What was going through his mind at that time? How do you think that Joseph felt when his brothers sold him into slavery? How do you think that David felt when King Saul basically put out a hit on him and sought to kill him? even though David knew that he'd been anointed by God and was supposed to be the next king. How did he feel in the midst of that? How do you think that Jonah felt when he was swallowed by a giant fish? How do you think Daniel felt when Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians and, Babylonians and he was taken off in chains for the rest of his life to Babylon? How do you think the disciples felt the Saturday after the crucifixion? When the man in whom they placed their faith, the man whom they dedicated their lives to was gone and as far as they knew, would never be seen again. How do you think they felt that day? How do you think that Paul felt when he was thrown into prison again and again and again and again throughout his ministry in the book of Acts? I mean, every one of these people, a giant of the faith, to be sure, was a human being. 
And you know that they were filled with despair and loneliness. You know they asked the question, God, what are you doing? How can you do this to me? God, don't you see that I love you? And yet this is what happens. This doesn't make any sense. But that's the pattern. Circumstances descend, hope vanishes, we're filled with despair. And yet, if the story of Elisha's servant is true, and if the story of the rest of these men's story is true, God is still there and God is still at work and God still has a purpose. And there must be a point where God says, you know what, just trust me, just trust me. Have, have I proven to you again and again and again that I love you? Have I demonstrated that to you on many occasions? I don't know if God feels frustrated, but I think he must. I know that Jesus sometimes did. Jesus, the son of God, God incarnate, looked around his disciples on many occasions and said, you guys, you just don't get this, do you? You really don't get it. The psychologist Scott Peck says it really, really well in talking about the disciples and describing Jesus' reaction to the disciples. He said, I was absolutely thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found in the Gospels. I discovered a man who was almost constantly frustrated. His frustration leaps out of virtually every page. What do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say it? What do I have to do to get through to you? Jesus had to put up with a lot from his disciples, didn't he? I mean, they were with him for three years. They traveled with him. They prayed with him. They listened to him teach. They saw him minister. They saw him heal. They saw him perform miracles that were beyond human belief, and yet they didn't get it. They just would, would continually cause Jesus to sh shrug his shoulders in frustration and say, you guys just don't understand. Here's an example. Mark 9, verse 30 to 32, a really clear example of their inability to see, to even ask the right questions. They went on from there, that is Jesus and his disciples, and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he was killed. After three days, he will rise. Now, that is a bombshell, right? I mean, that's big news. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be convicted. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And you would think that would get a reaction. But it says in verse 32, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So they just kind of look at each other and go, huh? And they turn the page. And I would imagine Jesus looks at them at that point and goes, did you guys just hear what I said? But they didn't. They heard the words, but they didn't get the meaning. And we know that because in the very next verse, verse 33, it says this. And they came to Capernaum. And he was in the house. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. So <laughs> is that a non sequitur? I'm going to die. Who's number one? I mean, that makes no sense. And you can imagine that Jesus is looking at them going, really? That's what you got? That's what you're doing. But that's what they did again and again and again. And no wonder Scott Peck puts the words in Jesus' mouth. What do I have to say to you? How many times do I have to say it? What do I have to do to get through to you? These guys didn't see what Jesus was after. They didn't see what he was up to. They didn't understand. And here's a sampling from the book of Mark. I just took the book of Mark and looked at it. I'm going to look at five chapters, and I'm just going to see what I see. And here's what I saw. This is Jesus responding to his disciples throughout Mark 4 to Mark 9. Listen to these words. Again, in every case, he's talking to his disciples. Mark 4, 13. Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? Mark 4, 40. Why are you so afraid? You still have no faith? 
Mark 8, 17, and then verse 21. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you still not understand? Mark 8, 33. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And then Mark 9, 19. Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? These are the men that Jesus was closest to, and they don't get it. And so really it should come as no surprise that we don't get it either, that we're confused and we're lost and we wonder what God is up to. And again, I don't think Jesus is surprised by that. I don't think when we don't understand what's going on that he looks at us like, you dummies. Because again, if the giants of the faith react this way to things that are confusing to them, of course we're going to react the same way. And it just continues. One of what I think is one of the funniest stories in the Bible occurs in Acts 12. Peter's in prison. And so the disciples decide they're going to gather together the early church leaders, men and women, and they're going to, get, they're going to have a prayer meeting for Peter and pray that he will be okay, that he'll get out of jail, he'll be safe. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 12. And here's the story. So Peter is supernaturally freed from prison. He finds himself on the streets of Jerusalem, and he's kind of bewildered at first. He's like, how did I get here? But then he realizes I'm free, and he starts to head toward where he knows the disciples will be. So when he realized this, that is when Peter knows he's free, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, the servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. These are the disciples. These are the heroes of the faith. These are the men and women that Jesus said, okay, I'm, putting, I'm staking it all on you. And they're having a prayer meeting, for goodness sakes. And their prayer is answered, and they say to Rhoda, you're crazy. Go away. And that's not even the worst thing. Then this is what happens. But she kept insisting it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. In other words, he's dead. They're having a prayer meeting with the guy. They, they've given up hope. But Peter continued knocking. When they opened, they saw him and were amazed. Yeah, because they didn't, believe, they didn't believe that God would answer their prayers. But he was there. He was at work. He had it under control, and they didn't see it. They were spiritually blind, just like Elisha's servant, just like Jonah and the whale, just like Daniel and David and all the others we mentioned earlier. Tim Keller speaks to this really clearly, I think. He uses Mary Magdalene as an example. On Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. Now, Jesus has told his disciples and his followers many times, I will rise in the third day. So Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb with no expectation that he, has, he is back from the dead. And this is what Keller writes. There is in every human being an inherent spiritual blindness. We can't see the truth. We cannot connect it to ourselves. As Exhibit A, here we witness the aftermath of the greatest act of redemption in history, God breaking the power of sin and death through the resurrection of Jesus. And this had been accompanied by months and years of teaching by Jesus about this event and its meaning. And yet here is Mary staring right at it, the empty tomb, and she can't see it. She can't process it at all. And so faith is impossible without supernatural intervention by God himself. So Mary Magdalene joins the ranks of the spiritually blind. She doesn't see it either. And as Keller says, faith is impossible without supernatural intervention by God himself. We just don't see it. The things of God are so far beyond our understanding that when he's at work, we often are blind to it. Because life is hard. And we get caught up in the day-to-day -day pain and the reality of the way life can be. 
No matter who we are, no matter how blessed we are, no matter how well our life is going, we know that at any moment life can hit us in the face with a two-by-four, and it often does. We know that death awaits. We know that pain awaits. There's no way we can escape it. That's the reality. And so all of us ask the question, does he care? Can I trust him? Is he there? And the reality is we can because we serve a God who is committed to transforming us into the people he knows that we can be. If we are his children, he is in the process of that transformation. And it is a process, not an event. He doesn't wave his magic wand. He says to us, you're going to go through life and there are going to be things that are going to be very hard. You're not going to understand, but I am making you into the person you are created to be. And he's patient with us when we fail to understand. He doesn't chastise us. He doesn't say, how can you be so dumb? Because he loves us. He chisels away at our souls, transforming us again into the people that we are intended to be. That's what he does. So in the face of that, in the face of that reality, in the face of the difficulty that life can bring to us, what do we do with spiritual blindness? What's the answer to that? I want to offer three things that perhaps can help us to understand how we might cope. I want to begin by reading a parable a parable written by Max Lucado, who is a pastor in San Antonio. I actually used this example 10 years ago in a totally different sermon in a totally different context, and I doubt that anybody remembers it. So I'm not too worried that this, oh, we've heard this before. Um, but I think it really speaks to this issue. This is called the parable of the old man and the white horse. Once there was an old man who lived in a tiny village. Although poor, he was envied by all, for he owned a beautiful white horse. A horse like this had never been seen before. Such was its splendor, its majesty, and its strength. People offered fabulous prices for the steed, but the old man always refused. This horse is not a horse to me. He's a friend, not a possession. The man was poor and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning he found the horse was not in his stable. All the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you someone would steal your horse. We warned you you would be robbed. You're so poor. How could you ever protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better to have sold him. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high. Now the horse is gone and you've been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That's all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? The people contested, don't make us out to be fools. The simple fact is, the simple fact that your horse is gone is a curse. The old man responded, all I know is the stable is empty. The horse is gone. The rest, I don't know. Whether it be a curse or blessing, I can't say. All we can see is a fragment. Who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed at him. They'd always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead, he was a poor woodcutter, cutting firewood, dragging it out of the forest, and selling it. Now he had proven he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned. He hadn't been stolen. He had run away into the forest. Not only had he returned, he had brought a dozen wild horses with him. Once again, the village people gathered around the woodcutter and spoke. Old man, you were right and we were wrong. What we thought was a curse was a blessing. The man responded, once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him. But don't judge. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? You see only a fragment. You read only one page of a book. Can you judge the whole book? Don't say this is a blessing. No one knows. I'm content with what I do know. I'm not perturbed by what I don't. Maybe the old man's right, they said to one another. But down deep, they knew he was wrong. They knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses had returned. With a little work, the animals could be trained and sold for much money. The old man had a son, his only child. 
the young man began to break the wild horses. After a few days, he fell from one of the horses and broke both legs. Once again, the village, villagers gathered around the old man and cast their judgments. You were right. You proved you were right. The dozen horses were not a blessing. Your only son has broken both his legs, and now in your old age, you have no one to help you. Now you are poorer than ever. The old man spoke again. You people are obsessed with judging. Don't go so far. Say only that my son broke his legs. Who knows if it's a blessing or a curse? We only have a fragment. It so happened that a few weeks later, the country went to war against a neighboring country. All the young men in the village were required to join the army. Only the son of the old man was excluded because he was injured. Once again, the people gathered around the old man, crying because their sons had been taken. There was little chance they would return. They would never see their sons again. You were right, old man. God knows you were right. This proves it. Your son's accident was a blessing. His legs may be broken, but at least he is with you. With you, Our sons are gone forever. The old man spoke a final time. It's impossible to talk with you. You always draw conclusions. Say only this. Your sons had to go to war and mine did not. No one knows if it was a blessing or a curse. No one is wise enough to know. Only God knows. It's true, isn't it, that we only see in fragments. We really don't know when a singular event occurs in our life, how, what the long-term effects of that will be. Anybody who's lived any, any years at all knows that you've had moments in your life that you thought at the time were really bad that turned out to be a blessing. I mean, the number of people in this room who fell in love with somebody, thought this is the person they're going to marry, that relationship went sour, you broke up with them, they broke up with you, and you later married somebody else, and you can look back on that first, first love and say, you know what, that was an immature love, that was not the right person for me, I can now see it. At the time, it was heartbreaking, difficult, we cried tears, but the reality is, in retrospect, we look back and see what we thought was a curse was a blessing. Maybe for you, it was a job you thought you were going to get, you didn't get, and you look back on that and see that really wouldn't have been a good fit, or any one of a number of other circumstances it might have been. But many people in this room can look back on things that at the time seemed terrible that in fact turned out to be a blessing. So Lucado's parable works for us on that level. But it, I don't think it really satisfies ultimately because it does address some things, but what happens when the really soul-crushing events in our life occur? Some things happen that are so terrible, that are so painful, that are so difficult, that we look at those and go, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see any, any good in this at all, because they, the, the pain cuts so deeply. Well, what do we do with those situations? Because those are the ones that really, really matter. Those are the ones that cause us to really, really question God's goodness. Well, let me offer this as a perspective, perhaps. In John chapter 11, we get the story of Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha are among Jesus' best friends. Lazarus is deathly ill, and Mary and Martha send for Jesus to come. And their expectation surely is that he's going to come to, to his friend's bedside and heal him. That's what they think is going to happen. But that's not what occurs. Jesus doesn't come. And you can imagine that metaphorically they're looking at their watch going, where is he? Where is he? He's going to get here any minute, but he doesn't. And Lazarus dies. And so when he comes, their reaction is both sisters say separately, they say the same thing to him. Lord, if you would, would have been here, my brother would not have died. And, you know, we don't really get the tone from the Bible necessarily, so I'm kind of guessing. But I, but I think that the reaction was... And that was an accusatory tone. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, where were you? You heal all these people you don't even know, and this is a guy you love, and you didn't even come? Where were you? 
a good question, isn't it? Now, Jesus could have reacted to that in a lot of ways. He could have said, how dare you question me? How dare you? But he didn't. He could have said, hey, just wait a couple minutes. I'm going to do something that's just going to blow your mind. I'm going to do a little razzle-dazzle here. Your brother's going to walk out of the grave, and you will not believe it. It's going to be fantastic. He doesn't do that. Instead, he does something very unexpected and very powerful. And what I think, honestly, are some of the, one of the most powerful sentences in the entire New Testament. I'm a teacher. I'm an English teacher. I, I teach writing. When I teach my kids to write, I say, if you want to write a really powerful sentence, that will leap off the page, write a really short sentence. Because in a long paragraph with a lot of long sentences, a very short sentence will just leap off the page. And we get in the middle of the Lazarus story, a two-word sentence, actually a two-word verse. It says simply this, in response to the question, if you would, or the statement, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. The second time that said to him, it says this, Jesus wept. And the word actually is much stronger than wept. It means Jesus sobbed. Jesus breaks down. Jesus begins to cry. Why? He knows he's about to heal Lazarus. He knows in five minutes, Lazarus is going to walk out of the tomb. So in a sense, he could have said, hey, no big deal. What are you crying for? But he doesn't. He says to the sisters in his tears, this is terrible. This world is painful. This world is difficult. This world is hard for each of us. And I am so sorry. I am so sorry that you have to suffer this way. I am so sorry that your brother is dead, this person you love. I loved him too. And I am so, so sorry. Even though he knows that, Jesus, that Lazarus is going to walk out of that tomb in a few minutes. Jesus identifies so deeply with the pain that they're going through. And by extension, the pain that we're going through. He doesn't look at us when we're, when we're despairing and say, how dare you question me? Or how dare you challenge my thinking or the way I'm doing things? He weeps with us in the midst of our pain. He comes alongside of us and says, I am so sorry. And, he's, and it's even greater than that. Because, yes, he raises Lazarus from the dead and there's a great celebration. But in a few days after this occurs, he will go to Jerusalem. And he will be arrested. And he will be convicted. And he will be put on a cross. And he will die. And he dies for our sins. And that's certainly true. But he also dies to make the world the way it was supposed to be. He's trying to put the world back to the way it was intended to be. And what he's saying in the, in the cross is, I love you so much that I don't want you to live a life of pain and sorrow and suffering. I want you to live a life in union with me and a life of joy. That's what this is about. So the words Jesus wept really matter. He's saying, you don't need to apologize for your tears. You don't need to feel guilty about that. Yes, this is a hard, what you're going through is hard, and I weep with you. And it's even more than that. Because it, it doesn't stop there. We get a promise that one day, as Revelation 21.4 says, he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When we're in the midst of a difficult situation, it's very hard for us to see past the, immediate, the immediacy of the pain we're in. But there's the promise. There's the promise. One day he will wipe away every tear. Death shall be no more. Crying, pain, gone. Paul says something really interesting in Romans 8, 18. Now, Paul was a man who suffered terribly throughout his ministry. He was beaten. He was thrown in prison. He was shipwrecked. He was attacked by mobs. He was stoned nearly to death and left to die. 
And yet he says in Romans 8.18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. I want you to look at the verb there, I consider. I consider. Whenever I'm threatened to be overwhelmed by the circumstances of my life, whenever I'm sitting in that jail cell and saying, what, where are you, God? His response is to consider. He looks at the future glory. He looks at what's going to come. He looks at the idea that one day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So when those events in life hit us, when we're crushed by them, when we feel like there's no light at the end of the tunnel, Paul's advice is to consider, is to ponder, to reflect, to think. Lord, this is terrible, but I know you're weeping with me. I know you're here with me. I don't see it. I don't feel it, but I know you're there. And I know that you went to the cross, and I know you died to take that away from me, and I know that one day you will wipe away every tear. Now, that doesn't mean that the pain magically goes away. It doesn't mean that suddenly everything's fine. But that's the hope we cling to. That's the hope of the cross. That's the hope of the gospel, that one day this world will be restored the way it was meant to be. So what do we do when pain descends? Well, as Lucado says, as Max Lucado says, we need to understand that life comes in fragments, and some of the things that seem bad to us today will, in, in the long run, turn out to be actually a good thing. We need to reflect upon that. We need to remember that Jesus weeps for us when we weep. He doesn't say, get over it. He doesn't look at us like, you idiots. It's going to be okay. He weeps with us, and we need to remember that one day he, he will wipe away the tears. That's our comfort. So though it may not always feel that way, it may not always seem that way, God is good, God is there, and God cares. Let's close in prayer. Father, <clears throat> I'm sure there are people in this room right now who are going through really unspeakably burdensome periods of their life. And, and I just pray that for those who are there right now, for those who have been there, and for all of us who will be there, that we would simply have the wisdom to consider who you are, what you've done, and how you care for us. It's so easy to let the immediacy of our circumstances swamp us because life is hard. But you are there, and you are good, and you care, and we thank you for that. In Christ's holy name, amen.